Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Thursday, July 23rd, 2020. It is 12:11 Eastern Standard Time. Um, and so I'm Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. I'm the director of We Be Imagining and the co-host of this podcast that focuses on the intersection of COVID-19, uh, race, technology, surveillance, policing, gender, sexuality, and disability. I'm here with my co-host, Stanley Munoz. What's up, Stanley? What's up, what's up, Khadija? Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Stanley Munoz, and I'm a dancer and choreographer based out in Los Angeles right now. Oh, and I forgot to say, I use she, her pronouns, and Stanley, if you could say which pronouns you use. Thank you for that. Yeah, uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. And Elon, what's good? Could you say a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Elon. I'm a PhD student at Cornell Tech, working in the Future Autonomy Research Lab. I use he, him, his pronouns. And today we're going to get into Black computational thought, curating the archives, and more with Trevor Ellison and Romy Morrison. Trevor Ellison is a multimedia artist and scholar whose work enacts Blackness as the imaginative's capacity to desire and enact something else and otherwise. Their research interests are Black geographies, queer history, and the history of the carceral state. Trevor is an assistant professor of gender and women's studies at Pomona College. Romy Ron Morrison is an interdisciplinary designer, artist, and researcher working across new media, Black feminist praxis, and cultural geography. And if you could each say a little more about yourself, which pronouns you use, and about your research, maybe let's begin with Trevor. Sure. Hey, y'all. Uh, so my name is Romy, and I, I work primarily as, as an artist and as a scholar. I'm particularly interested in the things that we tend to call social and technical. Um, and I think I, I have a lot of interest in, in how things become enclosed, whether that's land becoming enclosed by boundaries or information being enclosed and turned into data. Uh, and so I'm interested in both trying to understand how that process happens and then also to extend into all the myriad and kind of overlapping and entangled ways that those things are inherently limited. And I try to pursue that both through a lot of uh, like research and then also through a lot of artistic experimentation. Um, I'm currently in Brooklyn, New York right now. And I'm happy to be talking with you. So I love, I don't know which one of us has the sirens in the background, but I love how that kind of underlines all of your statements right now. Um, so what I'm so excited. I've been talking for weeks about having you guys on the show because as soon as I saw each of your talks, I was like, this is going to be phenomenal. Um, and I feel bad sometimes for our guests because I feel like I put all my existential angst about like data policy and everything onto them. And I know we can't solve all of that, <laughs> but I just wanted you know, something that's been on my mind throughout this first season and thinking towards the next season is that critiques of technology often focus on differentiated social impact. And while I agree that's worthy of focus, I'm interested in the conversation that examines the epistemic assumptions embedded in socio-technical systems that aim to calculate Black life. And there's this overlap between that conversation and the one you're engaged in, Romy, as far as map making. And I'm thinking about how map making is both a top-down colonial project of carving the geographies of complex relationships between peoples versus like the liberatory demands of Palestinians demanding to be recognized by Google Maps. Um, or then another layer down how you point out in your talk about how dynamic flows of people can be represented. 
And I was hoping, uh, Romy, if you could speak a little bit about your map making practice and how it relates to computational thinking. Sure. Um, so there's a long arc there, um, which you're, you're starting to like to, to speak to and, and kind of articulate. Uh, I think for me, it, so as it relates to a lot of my practice, um, I, I try not to always make really clear differentiations between, uh, I guess, like what what is like the study or the things that I'm interested in, like what we consider like occupational or my practice and then like how I live my life. And so I think for me, map making is very much a feature of um, like neighborhoods that I've grown up in. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago um, and in a neighborhood where it it's very, um, I mean, it's a city of like hyper segregation. And so it's really hard to see like difference as you're moving through that area. And I can remember going to New Orleans for a family reunion when I was maybe eight or nine. And just the differentiation of how like things changed almost by the block or by like every like few miles and maybe like a 10 or 15 minute car ride, uh, you could see such differentiation and change. And so that was like really startling to me in a lot of ways, um, just how quickly the landscape would shift. And so a lot of these early curiosities just began from uh, being in places where it was just really hard to like read and understand how difference worked there, how that then changed what the neighborhood looked like or felt like. Um, and so my interest in mapping came much later in life. I think I was maybe 26 and in grad school at the time. Um, and came out of like prior like undergraduate training and critical theory around gender and race. And I think at the time mapping became a tool that seemed really seductive because it was, I think for a lot of people that deal in critical theory, it can sometimes feel frustrating that you don't, you're not really arriving at a place. You're always kind of like seeking and searching and questioning and deconstructing. And at the time uh, I felt a lot of responsibility to want to take some of that richness of that theory and understood how it related to like the built environment. And so mapping was appealing as a tool to try and do that. Um, and so some of the first maps that I was kind of working with and making were looking at the Hulk redlining maps uh, from the 1930s and trying to understand how decisions made about race, about segregation, about value uh, were kind of cemented into the land and to try and understand what the like continuing slow violences and residues are uh, as we understand space now. So it's working with redlining maps from the 1930s and then kind of like scanning them, uh, bringing them into GIS software and creating digital maps out of them and to use those geographies as lenses to see contemporary data sets. Um, things like tax lot information for at the time New York City uh, and better trying to understand, yeah, what the kind of residues are and what the power of the map can be uh, so what I've just been talking about is basically like one of the maybe like partial benefits of map making and that it can make something visible. Uh, but at the same time as a feature of making something visible, it tends to, uh, I mean, it tends to make things almost like kind of absolute so that the geographies, the redlined areas on the map were only understood as being sites of like violence and dispossession um, and kind of allied histories of response of um, kind of like creative and adaptive strategies in which people have like operated under different lines of value, different orientations to space. So the map can't hold all of that, right? It's incomplete in that way. Um, I think as it relates to computation, computation tends to look at things in that similar top-down sort of worldview 
in which everything's axiomatic, clear, and discrete. And so what gets removed, again, are these more like entangled, uh, sort of socially imbued creative responses that just can't be seen. Cool. And a lot of this makes me think, Treva, of your talk at Barnard on Black trans reproductive labor. And a big thing that kind of stuck with me in listening to you speak at Barnard was this idea that categorization itself is so fluid and who's even considered to be trans or queer when looking through primary sources like newspapers or other periodicals, um, or who's considered to be deviating from gender norms is so socially determined that you as an, as an archivist really have to go in and kind of make decisions and parse, you know, uh, what is being communicated depending on how these categories are changing. And so I don't know if you want to respond um, in relationship to, to your archival practice or to some of the things that Romy is pointing out, but I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are. My earliest connection to maps was of like, oh, when I learned how to drive, uh, I would go on road trips with my parents and like my dad uh, for a part of his life was a, d- drove trucks. And so he always wanted to go these funny ways to like avoid this and that. And he's like, It'll, you'll cut an hour. And so like, I, for me, like the map was, like my interest in maps, I guess, would be like the sociality of the map. Like that's my connection to it is like using it as like a tool, but really it was about having this conversation. So when I would go on road trips uh, as a young adult, I would always call my dad and be like, tell me the trucker way you want to go there. He'd be like, now pull out your map. You want to do So like, I think I carry that into my archival practices that often like, yeah, like what I'm doing is, um, mapping yeah like like mapping things but trying to think about trying to really think about the the sociality of those maps and so I also uh, have been trained in GIS and I use mapping in my research and one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm taking those same uh, Hulk maps that Romy was talking about and I'm overlaying them with the maps that local social welfare agencies made around the same time Uh, that were called like maps of relative social need. I'm also overlaying that with the LAPD policing boundaries at the time. And it's really, yeah, it's like really interesting thinking with like Khalil Gibran Muhammad's work in The Condemnation of Blackness, where he talks about the importance of the census as a basic kind of, the census uh, tracked as a basic mode of enclosure of like you know, a way to think about and make space discreet so that you can kind of control what happens in that space. And I think that, uh, yeah, like, I think that my interest in mapping and especially in relation to like Black, queer, and trans people and geographies is about kind of, yeah, kind of bringing, I like to do this palimpestic layering to kind of try to bring us into the sociality of the map, both the kind of sociality of the state uh, and carceral forces that are kind of like, it's so amazing the accordance between all those districts. And then I can map on top of that um, specific news cases I found where like Black queer people have been arrested or had some kind of uh, interaction with the police, have been murdered by the police. And I think you start to see all these interesting things. Like I, I can give a brief example of like one Black uh, gender nonconforming person whose story I found in the uh, newspaper archive who was murdered by the LAPD in 1970. In the place in the place that this person was murdered, if you look at the Hulk map, because I've layered them all, and you read the census takers' notes, 
it says this is a fit district for a slum clearance project. So you all you see how that like invocation in the late 30s is them being carried out already still in 1970 by the police. And I think there's something rich about one thinking about that. And then I also use mapping to think about the social like a different kind of sociality, like black, queer, and trans sociality. Like what is the what is the connection between these places that even the discipline of trans studies only treats as discrete points that provide evidence that a trans person existed. Black trans black people's stories are often computed in the logic of transgender studies as discrete points to prove that trans people existed. And then what still gets evacuated is the sociality of black sense of place. Like when you actually go to the archive and you know I've been I've had the great honor and privilege to be able to talk to black queer and trans elders, it's like, you know, there's so much richness in the sociality that made their life possible. And like, that is, that is to me what gets lost often, even in like, you know, the discipline of transgender studies, as it tries to recover the fact that like being trans or gender nonconforming is nothing new and has existed throughout time. Like that is a worthwhile project, but I see the ways that even black people become and black geographies become instrumentalized to do that work. Can I just ask you that that sentence that you said felt so important? I don't have the exact wording, but you said something along the lines of black people's sociality as as trans is often calculated as a discrete point and then something broader gets evacuated. I don't have it exactly, but that sounded so critical and I just missed it. I don't know if it's if I missed my moment, but if you could repeat that. Sure. I think I said like yeah, black black queer and trans geographies get computed as discrete points in the kind of like um, genealogy of trans studies to say, hey, look, trans people have existed throughout time, but what often gets evacuated in that computation of trans life is a Black sense of place. Damn, yeah, no, that was it. Thank you for repeating that. I was like, I don't want to miss that. I'm I'm curious in, in your experience, and, and this came up, I think, in the talk that, that Khadija referenced earlier at, at uh, Barnard, I think, uh, where you you discuss recreating the the maps and statistics um, like as an archival practice of the like LAP, LAPD's like queer containment spatial imaginary was I think the the way you described it and I, I was thinking about it in the context of of some of the previous interviews we've done on this podcast but the degree to which everything is mapped now uh, both right so so there's this archival process that you are going through of, of mapping things that that did exist or may or may not have been viewed of as maps at the time and recreating them now as points for analysis. But I was wondering if you could speak to how that relates to the world we live in now where everything is mapped all the time. The LAPD is constantly analyzing the the activity in the city through maps via via spatial analysis we are doing the same, right? Like there's, there's like literal counter mapping and there's like maps of protest and maps of, of, you know, I'm trying to think of the, the correct words, but, 
but you have mapping used on, on multiple sides. And in some sense, we live in maps so much more now than I think may, may have been the case at the times you're, you're kind of studying, or at least you were in that talk. Um, and I was hoping you could speak to that a little. Yeah, I, and Romy, please feel free to jump in because I think this is maybe also help. Like what I hear in that is like, what does it mean to be, just what does it mean to be using mapping right now, given that we live in a like visuality that's dominated by it? Like it, what is, what about doing that maybe like just reproduces that mode of thinking and that maybe what is getting lost, like what is getting lost in that, I guess that's what I was hearing in your question. Is that true? Maybe getting lost, maybe, maybe also not. I mean, I, I did really like in one of Romy's uh, pieces, uh, Gaps Between the Digits, the, the two maps that were shown of the Mississippi River, right? The, um, the Lloyd's map of the lower Mississippi River, where it's claiming like, this is this is the reality of the world we live in, and then this one right underneath it, which is the alluvial valley, and it shows just like, you know, like I want a print of this map on my wall, right? Like just these incredible variations in the river over time, and it, it shows the power of like maps can be used to convey a wide variety of things spatially, temporally, and and those are design decisions, and you are you are using maps you know, as an, as a form of archival practice, mm -hmm. right. To, to study the past and, and to capture aspects of the past versus like when I need to get somewhere, I like gotcha. immediately pull out a map and I'm living in that map. And like the city I walk around in, I view as myself, but then I also view as like a grid of streets that I like know from a top-down perspective. And my mom grew up in New York and I, I don't think that she views the city the same way I do. And it's, it is to some degree a fact that our our perceptions of space are now so much more mediated through that that top-down perspective. Yeah, I guess what I have to say to that question is I think that's why I, I'm choosing to kind of take this palimpestic approach. Um, uh, I, there, uh, there's a Black queer scholar at University of North Carolina named Danielle Coleman who writes has this piece about queer palimpest. It's really beautiful. But I th I'm thinking with him in terms of design, like to me, it's not just enough to represent the map because it's, I, yeah, like I, to be like, look, this is this map from the past, but I actually think it's the layering and then ha like having these different news stories. Cause yeah, like people didn't, people maybe were, did not think of the city in terms of the way that like, when I'm driving through Los Angeles now, I can kind of picture it. Also, because I've made so many maps of Los Angeles, I can kind of picture it in this um, map, yeah, like top-down kind of view. But th yeah, there's something, at least for me, that I'm experimenting with this layering process to try to figure out, like, yeah, how to how to get a sense of, I love those alluvial maps because they track the different changes in the Mississippi over time, and they are in a their own way kind of palimpestic but a palimpest is actually something that's overwritten on top of and on top of each other so they they the the like map maker found a very beautiful way to display it so that we can see all those crisscrosses design wise so yeah I guess on a like nuts and bolts level that's what I'm playing with in the software to be like how do I uh how do I actually do this and I think that's something maybe 
uh, this is a good time for Romy to jump in that I think we've been trying to play with in our decoding possibilities project of like, how do you actually, from a design standpoint, approach like a black sense of place given thinking with someone like Catherine McKittrick and her, uh, she has this great article about herbicide, um, you know, that uh, representation so often fails to convey a black sense of place uh, with maps. It's often about like putting, like putting black people in place. And so we can see like what I find interesting, and this is the last thing I'll say about the counter mapping strategies that we, for example, saw coming out of Ferguson, like mapping police, mapping places where police murders were happening and mapping incidents of police violence. I think where I align with that kind of project is like, yeah, and instead of trying to, you know, the Hulk map was trying to freeze black people in place, but there's a way that like actually trying to map the archive of the state that the, like that the state likes to pretend like is transparent is kind of like turning its own optic on itself. Like actually, yeah, like mapping these state practices, practices of state violence. And I think that's also a part of, I guess, what I'm what I'm doing with looking at all these like state archives. You know, I'm like looking at books that haven't been touched in years. Like there's this great map of trying to relate. Um, anyway, I'll stop there. <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to jump in really quick in response to to your question, Elon. And I think what was coming up for me is that, I mean, the map as a tool or as a method is like always needs to be situated. Like it's always entangled in a certain kind of power relation. And you're bringing that up and you're making the distinction between like the maps that I included in that article between the Lloyd map of the Mississippi River, which is very much a map around a kind of demonstrable control over a natural forest and really relegating it to a linear single blue line that was in the service of like transport, commerce, the building of the US as like a kind of capitalist nation and its relation also to the controlling and like transportation relegation of black bodies as well as like the removal of native people, native people from their land. So that's all entangled in that map and in the single line that's there because it shares a similar ideology of proprietary and demonstrable control over something, which as we see in the Harold Fisk maps of 1944, alluvial plains of the Mississippi River are really lively and possibly have a kind of agency that are denied in that kind of representation. Mm -hmm. So the map is always entangled in this kind of power relationship and it's never completely clean or sanitized from that. I think even in practices of counter cartography, which means that the people that are doing the mapping and what is being mapped matters. It's not just a, a kind of method or tool that can be interchanged or that is modular in that way. And I think as it relates to the work that Treva and I have been doing together around decoding possibilities, um, the question is almost like how you contend with that violence that the map just has inherently, which is usually a violence of removal of sanitizing and of an inability to capture again what Trevor's referring to and that Catherine McKittrick kind of calls a black sense of place. And so I think our work has in part been to push back against a, a visual language that is premised in a kind of like modernist, uh, like clean aesthetic and instead to, to stay in the tangle and to stay in the fray um, with the hopes of both showing the possibilities as well as the violences that are inherent within something like the map or within a kind of like uh, like visual articulation of space, 
Um, and to stay there and think about what can be gleaned from, again, those kind of like alluvial motions, from the tingle, from the overlap, from the palpacet. These are the kinds of, um, I guess this is the way that we're trying to contend with what is inherent within the map, which is that kind of simultaneity of kind of promise and violence. So, um, uh, thinking about the the ways in which you are all um, crafting your map, I'm looking at. Um, I want to focus a bit more on uh, decoding possibilities, um, specifically, and also Trevor, your um, response on um, Venta Power. I think the idea of Venta Power it's a beautiful idea, as you describe it. It is um, the power generated when that which is never meant to survive endures and pushes through, the way mushrooms can push through pounds of heavy leaves on the forest floor, right? And I think myself growing up, uh, being born and raised in Harlem, I immediately get this arose in Harlem, uh, pushing through the concrete. Um, this um, imagery and this um, imaginary immediately comes to mind. And so thinking about your map, your map making process, both um, Romy and Trevor as uh, the both of you collaborate, I'm wondering how you integrate Vanta Power into your analysis or into your um, approach. Mm, wow. Uh, thank, that's a rich question. I can say real quick, the way I feel Vanta Power and decoding possibilities is like in the, so uh, when we, you know, part of that process was like going through the, like Tom Barbara Smith's archive uh, papers at the Lesbian History Archive, uh, online newspaper articles, and just the archive around that time in Boston to try to, like, you know, assemble the sense of, like, how did the Combahee River Collective chapter that was in Boston, like, operate across space in this moment where all these Black women were getting murdered? It's so similar. It feels so similar to, like, things that are happening right now. So it's like, what, like, how did the you know, we all, I always heard that story, but it's like, how, what did they actually do? Um, and so, you know, we had, we had all these addresses, we found all these flyers of like, they gave a talk here, they did it here. And we were like, okay, we don't want to just like show these as points on a map, um, because that's playing into the same like visual language of like, just putting Black people in place. But then we also want to note that like, something important did happen in this in this particular place like the specificity matters and so how do we how do we juggle like how do we hold that and I think one of the design choices we made is thinking with the collective like you know I uh, I had gotten a chance to actually visit the Combahee, the Combahee River in Port Royal South Carolina and thinking with Harold Fisk's alluvial maps which were an inspiration to both of us like we did choose to kind of make that underlying map. So you have to put on those glasses to kind of see the Combahee spatiality that is like, you know, just underneath this racialized view of space that's in this kind of like bold red. And then but when you put on the glasses, you can see this thing, but the shape of it, we tried to make like riparian and to kind of like think, yeah, think of it as like, like a river and think like, yeah, to like think about it through that modality. And so for me, that felt like an exercise of Vanta power, like trying to, trying to like actually come up with and communicate visually, like, you know, something in particular that also gestured to something larger, which is what comedy was trying to do.
And I think something else that's a part of that um, also continues in this conversation that we've kind of been having ongoing about both like racialized space and black geography and I guess the relationship between the two. Um, so racialized space kind of referring to how Trevor's talking about putting black people in place, uh, the ways that race becomes a way of a kind of proprietary fixing to the body and then fixing those bodies to particular areas, often through like really racist sort of like segregated policies um, versus a black geography, which you know, maybe adheres more to this kind of like alluvialness or adheres more to some notions of banter power and which like how, what is the sociality of how black lives are lived here and how can we like sort of stay in that place versus staying in this again, kind of like top down register of literally putting like racialized black bodies in a particular area. And so part of that meant in working with Kambahi's archive and in trying to spatialize it, um, Part of the decision in even going to the alluvial as a form of doing that was in understanding how Kambahi worked, which they did not work within like a brick and mortar sort of like single establishment. They worked through putting their sort of intersectional analysis at work for them, meaning through collaborations and through uh, alliances across the city. And so that's that's really essential because that's something that uh, you know doesn't adhere to this notion of fixing things to particular destinations, but show something that's in motion um, and something that is both in response to the racialized boundaries of Boston at the time, but then also like working across them and also playing them to their advantage. Um, like one of the things that came out of that research that I still think is really interesting is around the Dorchester Greenlight Project as you know, a kind of counter network of resource sharing explicitly to protect the lives of black women who needed like places of refuge while in public um, and the ways in which like uh, the sort of reinvention of the home not as a commodity but as something that opens up for the services of care and to have like a kind of clandestine network built on those uh, like relationships and then also uh, their manifestation in the built environment is is incredible and such an example of like advance of power for me um, and also something that otherwise is, is lost by the kind of totalizing overdeterminacy of the visual language that mapping often takes. Um, and so that it's just a, yeah, a wonderful thing I still feel really attached to. And so I know that you guys were interested in spending the second half of this episode thinking through what it means to reimagine um, in this space. But before we go there, and I think I think it connects, is that I just wanted to linger a little bit on this idea of a Black sense of place. And a lot of it, to me, is embodied in some of these tensions that you talk about with mapping in that you have these heat maps. I know like when I'm looking at predictive analytics and the child welfare, it's kind of similar to a heat map. You see certain places on fire where not just Black people are put into place, but you're, you're looking at the ways in which they're being like strip searched and policed and this like highly concentrated on particular streets like million dollar blocks. Um, but on the flip side, you know, for me, a Black sense of place in the midst of, I don't know, this racial capitalist pandemic moment we're in is very connected to the idea of fugitivity and how to escape. I mean, when you're thinking about mapping a destination, like where else do we want to go but somewhere than here? Um, and so those are just some of, I'm just kind of like 
saying sharing my thoughts out loud but if we could each kind of think together about what is this black sense of place mean and maybe that would be a good way to to start thinking about this reimagining yeah and i'm sorry that's for either of you i know i didn't name anyone but however you want to start yeah i just i want to do Catherine's work justice so i'm like taking my time to actually think about how to respond to it um I mean, I think one of the big things that just comes up for me is, is returning to, to something that Trevor had referenced that comes from that article uh, on plantation prisons in a black central place, um, which is the term herbicide um, and the ways in which sometimes the totalizing ways in which we seek to redress things like racial violence through methods like mapping means that it can look like the heat map or it can look like the million dollar blocks project in which we are we're trying to give a visual form to communicate uh you know expropriation basically and in doing so it can sometimes adhere to these logics of herbicide in which like these are simply sites of violence and nothing more um and i think a black sense of place pushes us always to like move beyond the simplicity of that logic, even if it's helpful in like, or like partially helpful or momentarily helpful or incompletely helpful in trying to like speak to something that is happening. A black sense of place will always and should always kind of push us beyond that kind of simplistic framing um, in the same ways that we can't look at the red line geographies of Boston and and only see expropriation we have to also be able to like push ourselves to see things like what Kambahi is doing in the space we have to push ourselves to see things like the Dorchester Greenlight project because these are things that elicit I think what Catherine McKittrick is calling for by a black sense of place it's not um it's not just the violence it's not just the life it's like it's the it's the entanglement between those things and it's also how black life responds to violence other than just being the subject of it, which is, I think, the really crucial piece, um, that it means that things like like agency are actually there. And it redirects where we think we need to be looking when we're thinking about how to uh, like analyze, make visible, or seek to um, like combat things like racial violence. Because even things like redlining or mapping, like they all tend to adhere to a kind of logic of of calculation and then maybe the redress is that well if we just continue to supply like home mortgages to people therefore that'll like alleviate the histories of redlining and like it's horrible racist past um i think a black sense of place pushes us to know that that's like woefully inadequate because the violence isn't just about these types of dispossession um and so it would mean that we should also look towards the agency of Black people to respond to things in place and to take that as, as being valuable and as real and as worthy of um, spending time with and like thinking with and learning from. Yes, I'm like, I was like, I can't, I was like, I'm like, I almost can't follow that up because it was, yeah, like so on point. Um, I guess what I'm thinking about is like in that there's, uh, in the introduction to the Black geographies reader that Catherine McKittrick and Clyde Woods uh, wrote together, they say Black geographies indexes how, maybe they didn't use the word index, but they're like Black geographies 
uh, is asking about how the unknowable figures into the production of space. And mm -hmm. so I think what Romy said about calculation is spot on. Like, I think sometimes, right, our tendency to map things uh, helps to, what does Sylvia Winter say? Like how we mistook the map for the territory. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, our, I our, love that line. our tendency to map things um, might, you know, can sometimes like reinforce the exact purview that we're trying to fight against. And I felt this so hard uh, in these COVID times where it's just like, we see how all this mapping and being able to prove, cause right, it's the, it's like the responding to the gaslighting of a previous era, era to be like, what do you mean racism? I don't see any racism. <laughs> so now it's like okay well now we can map all your practices and like actually locate it it's right here it's like here 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 where you did all these things so I, it like totally makes sense right to be like actually we'll show you but it's like it comes from being gaslit of like where uh-huh what are you talking about and then it's like okay well here we can show you and we see in these COVID times it's been like look we can show you like live these density clusters where like black people live but we know the reason why so many Black people might uh, are being exposed to COVID is so complex. It has to do with labor. It has to do with housing. But then the like map kind of like tends to like produce this conflation with Blackness and then like death. Like if you are Black, you will probably die from this thing. And we see that racists has responded like I'm in the deep South in Georgia in a town that's like half black and half white like none of the white people are wearing masks and I think it's because some of them are like cool this isn't about me like that like this is a thing that's really impacting someone else and so like yeah like I and we see that the more racist element of that is being like great let's yeah like let's make these people go back to work so I, I don't know it's like on the one hand we needed to be able to say that to kind of Ab, like advocate within this dystopic system for like this and that although we can question whether or not mm -hmm. that kind of rendering has like you know that like that its utility in the political like world has paid off in uh like relation to the kind of violent epistemo uh, the epistemological violence that that kind of purview tends to engender like I would love to hear from you all like we can talk about that because that's what I'm always interested like I'm interested in that question because it's like yeah like what do we do with that uh, and so to me it's like a black sense of place cannot a black sense of place like can't ignore racism because racism is always coming for a black sense of place mm -hmm. um, you know like and I yeah we yeah so it's like a black like black black people and a black sense of place isn't something that's like utterly like Romy was saying it's entangled it's not utterly discrete from the geographies of race it, it, it is entangled with them and so it's like what is like as people who are designers and scholars what is the best way to talk about artists how do we like really make that entanglement felt Audre Lorde said there's no new information there's only new ways of making things felt so how do we make that entanglement felt in a way that doesn't just reproduce this kind of like blackness equals death paradigm yeah, I'm interested in that question. I don't necessarily have a straightforward answer, but that's what comes up when I think about the black sense, a black sense of place. It's like, how do you literally create a visual language and way of communicating that holds space for the unknowable? And like, you know, that is not premised and, um, yeah, that is not premised on kind of like calculable logics, knowable and discrete things. 
we were talking about this earlier within the work of Audre Lorde, like this interest in a difference that doesn't have to be encoded in like separability and discretion. Like, how, yeah, like how do we cultivate that sensibility in our visual languages and our analyses? Because that does seem to be the double edge of mapping is that it often participates in a visuality that fails to render a Black sense of place. A Black sense of place is often defined the representational deform, uh, forms that approach it. I just have to say to go lowbrow for a moment is that I cannot talk about entanglement with hear- without hearing like the soundtrack of the entanglement <laughs> with August, like viral memes right now. <laughs> I just like, we can't be talking about a black sense of place and not be talking about like a little bit of an economy of Twitter right now. Um, <laughs> Shout out to Andre Brock for allowing me to make that like a formal <laughs> academic point. Um, is that, yeah, I'm just so happy to think out loud with y'all. I mean, a few things. I mean, one, I definitely feel this need to make legible and to map out the violence. Like dealing with child welfare on a lived experience level, the communities that are impacted, they already know what time it is, but the data isn't there. So the desire to make visible that violence, like, like there's a yearning, you know, like when we think about next steps strategically, that's the step that we want. So we could be like, look, they're doing it, even though we all already know. Right. Mm-hmm. But then when I'm speaking to families and communities that are directly impacted, I always try to emphasize not just the how incredible because people only see like their immediate experience. People have no idea the scope and the expanse of this particular form of policing. But what's so amazing to me as somebody that has tried to read everything on this from reconstruction to the present is that despite all the resources invested in separating and decimating kinship ties among black families is that we persist. You know, that we still have family Mm -hmm. that despite all of that, we got aunties and play cousins and we will you know, find blood and like, you know, find each other despite everything, you know, a huge percentage of kids whose parental rights um, were terminated, you know, when they were in elementary school, and then they age out, go back and they like they find their birth families. And so we reconnect no matter what, you know, and that goes back to this concept of like, mapping and counter mapping and fugitivity, right? Like so much of it is is finding the escape, but I do want people to see beyond the violence because if you only see the violence then you're kind of missing missing the point. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I was thinking about was what you raised about Catherine McKittrick's point about the unknowability and slavery. And it, it just made me think that so much of our mapping is tied to, to land claims and thinking about how little we know about the ocean's depths and connecting that mm-hmm. to Christina Sharp's point in the mm-hmm. wake about residence time, Sawande Mustakim's work of um, slavery and sea. And thinking about how much a lot of slavery studies focuses on what happened at the plantation or in transport, but not necessarily about the ocean. And like thinking up about people being thrown overboard. And the point that Sharp is making and and bringing up this concept of residence time is this idea of you know how how long does it take for people's you know physical bodies to be recycled back into the ocean? And you know a lot of those people who who chose to jump overboard, you know, didn't even make it to the sea's floor because of the ecology of the ocean. I'm not an oceanologist, so I can't really drop knowledge on that. Um, but again, like thinking about unknowability and the sea and the ocean and Joshua Bennett's work and thinking about like animality and blackness and how are they connected? And yet we're fighting for humanization and so not equating, you know, ourselves to, to, to animal. 
I don't know. So I, these are, none of these are like fully fleshed out points, but those are just some of the things that came up for me in hearing what you guys were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm also always happy to dive into like unfully fleshed out thoughts. I think there's a lot of really great generative uh, space and things that happen there. Uh, before we jump on this interview, Trevor and I were like trying to, I think, calm both of our nerves about having to seem like we're experts in some way. And I think for the two of us, uh, where some of the most beautiful things have come from have come from, like, I've been thinking about this thing. I'm just going to have a conversation with you about it and we'll see where we go. And that's led to some really kind of amazing places. So that kind of unknowability, I think, is really crucial because it doesn't set the end point of where we think we're supposed to arrive. And that can be extremely helpful, I think, when we're in situations even when there's a lot of pressure to have to make something clear, it's like holding open that space allows us not to like end at the clarity, which might entail further forms of violence, but to you know continue kind of like moving beyond it and moving with it. So just to say, I'm, I'm always happy to jump into uh, unfinished thoughts with you. <laughs> I like the point. Oh, sorry. No, I was just saying fire because we want... I don't think politically we want to be the bodega boys, but we do want to cultivate that. Like, <laughs> like I think I think we got some different ideological commitments in Jesus mm-hmm. and Miro, but I I feel like I want some of that like bodega, like literally the bodega, like corner store, mm-hmm. like barbershop flow in talking mm-hmm. about some of these issues, right? Like that's to me seems to be part of like the discursive solution. Um, but anyway, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was just, I really love the sharp example in terms of like just how that thinking about, thinking about that also just like expands our minds on like just what is blackness and where we can see it and what does it look like? Because I think that was the question that we were, we were like, okay, if blackness isn't just like black people in space or like, yeah, like black cancer clusters and X, Y, Z, if that's not what blackness is, if it's not just that, then like, how do we like, yeah, like what, like, what does it look like if we are people who are interested in visual communication? Like, what does it feel like? How do you know that you've seen it? And so I love this sharp example of like, you know, bioluminescence and thinking about all these ways, you know, like uh, I was in New Orleans uh, a bit ago and there was like a bunch of it was just super dusty because all this dust from the uh, Sahara Desert had blown over and made this big dust cloud. And I was reading about it and they were like, every year this actually happens and it's how a lot of the Caribbean beaches get replenished from the sand. But it had just reached this like huge point for some reason and that there was just like, it, it like, you know, it was like a huge plume. And I was just thinking, yeah, like I'm really interested in all like, this work that is not trying to kind of like equate black people with animals, but trying to think about trying to think about a difference that's not formed around like discreteness. Yeah, there's a non-discreteness. I'm thinking about uh, also of uh, Vanessa Agar Jones, I believe her name is this piece, What the Sands Remember about the uh, beaches of Mar- Martinique. Um, and sand as this other register of uh, black life and black queer life in particular. It's a really beautiful piece. So yeah, I really, 
I like that. I'm, I'm into that. I'm into like, and I think I like all those things because they're things that people have some kind of reference for. And then in an art setting, you know, like those are things that people can have a tactile experience with sand, water, this uh, idea of alluviality. It's like, also, how are we, how are we creating experiences with each other that are like helping to, you know, like, cause race is onboarded every day through all your stimuli. So it's like, also like, you know, like as the geographies of race are always trying to come for black sociality. And I love what you said, Khadija, and still like, in spite of that, like we've managed to like create, have these kinship systems and like, you know, anyway, I feel like I'm rambling, but yeah, I'm like really interested in like, how do we, how do we communicate the felt sense of that? Because like you said, sometimes people can get so like mired in their individual experience. I can too, but it's like, how do you, like what Cedric Robinson says, part of the Black radical tradition is just this continuous remembering of the, of, you know, this mm-hmm. desire and this practice to be on the property relation and it requires this like continuous remembering. Now I mess I mess with the rambling. It's funny. I feel like I feel like Catherine would 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 reject this title. But when we think about being experts, you know, I think for us who are more junior in the field, you know, I would refer to her as an expert. And she was also I remember when I asked her to come on the show, she was like, you know, I don't know if I could speak to the current moment. Like I'm not sure I know what to say. And I don't think that's an insecurity as much as it's about not wanting to recreate um, the prevailing systems by having this like totalizing redress to prior harms or to or, or even in this imagining to make it a monolith. But we are we are not. And so much is unclear. So I feel like we need the random. We need the detours and the tangents and the corner store and the barbershop, because like clearly we don't I know I know I don't want this, but I'm not I'm not sure <laughs> what the solution is. And so in thinking about reimagining, you kind of led me to my to my big question, which is that in the tech space, you know, they love to talk about imagining and newness and, you know, what the future is going to be like. And it's tied up in this idea of like novelty and the lone genius and the white dude in the, in the job, Steve Jobs outfit or the Chuck Taylors and stuff like that. Right. And I think that we all kind of are coming from a place where the idea of imagining or reimagining a new future is very much tied to this this effort to repair relations among those who've been historically excluded, but also the past and the archives. Um, So I kind of wanted to like set the stage to think about that reimagining with that. And then I also wanted to just throw in like a side question, which is, you know, there's so much I'm both excited about the Black Trans Lives Matter protests that I saw in Brooklyn and, and like, you know, that this has become like very much in the forefront and in the purview of like a lot of people's minds. But I also feel like there's kind of a mishmash of like progressive slash neoliberal, neoliberal like checklist, which is like, make sure you have the trans person come on, make sure you have the disability rights person come on. And so how are you thinking about like bringing in like queer thought and queer work and like sexuality into the conversation in a way that it's not just like, let's get an index and calculate to make sure we're like Mm -hmm. citing a certain proportion of like trans people, irrespective of what their work is and whether we've read it. Like how do you um, in this, in this kind of reimagining, I guess. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry, Kadisha, can you remind me the first part of your question? 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I asked like 12 questions. Neoliberal inclusionary politics that I got distracted and forgot about the first part of your question. You know what? Let's do it backwards. Let's do it backwards because I want to hit both. Um, And I think I think we need the second one because I really feel like it's important. And and I'm just even thinking about like selfishly from the point of view of the podcast. I want to do a better job in bringing in sexuality. But so Mm -hmm. many of the models are like this kind of checklist, you know, performative identity politic that kind of irks me. So I'm trying to I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's a clear line in how we just left this last conversation into this one, at least for me. I mean, for me, like some of the best things that like queer studies or queer theory or queer politics like offer is an ability to like languish in the beauty of like indeterminacy or of things that will be in flux and are not going to like be always be fixed or stable um in sort of the ways that we were just talking about unknowability uh unknowability in its relationship to blackness and how that refigures in space um like i i feel a lot of like drive and identity within that or identification not identity within that um which for me feels like the alluvial rivers. Like it feels like a lot of the things we've been discussing um, and that it needs to have the openness and extension, the capaciousness for, for non-normativity and for, I think, um, putting into question what seem, what is called natural, uh, what is like assumed to be, like putting into question what gets, what passes as common sense and interrupting those things, which I think is both a kind of careful active recovery, as you also kind of alluded to in your question, like recovery of the things that either were decimated or weren't allowed or were further alighted or ostracized. So it's both an active recovery, I think more than it is the kind of tech reimagine, like linear progressive narrative where we're just going to think our ways into some kind of future. Like that usually doesn't feel like imagination. It usually means we're trying to protect how we operate now into the future, which is like programmability and rationality. It's predictability more than it is imagination. Um, And so when I think about like all of the potential for what it means to in this moment have to combat a very real like neoliberal enclosure around identity as a kind of like tokenizing indexing of difference, which is not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the kind of the like not even just the potential, but maybe like the promise that that indeterminacy holds open, and that it doesn't allow any of us to have proprietary control over it. Therefore, to be able to leverage it in a hierarchical relationship to anything else. And I think at its best, that's what like a kind of queer politic holds for me. At its worst, it just turns into a kind of weird uh, like everything's relative, and we can't quite uh, like understand or speak to the real violences that are a part of differentiation. Um, and so I think that's that's still where there's a lot of work to do. Um, but yeah, that's what it holds for me. Yeah, this is like- Bars. I'm, like my mind is exploding because there's like a million different things I want to say about this inclusion because I feel really strongly about it. Uh, especially, first I want to start off by like one of the things that led me to Uh, wanting to work on my book was noticing that in all these kind of accounts of trans history, Black people, like I said earlier, would like populate this array of like, here's 
a like list of 47 people we found but in the early like before 1950 who were like living these gender fluid lives who today we might call trans see like and so i understand in a way like those people are responding to the gaslighting within larger society of like uh, this is a new thing yeah like y'all are new this is new we never heard of this before and it's like no we like you know transgender nonconformity has been around for a while it's not a new thing yet also what seems to be ignored by trans studies is that often like the context in which we have these stories is like a carceral context um like we have the story of this person because they were arrested or they were, yeah, they were jailed or they were killed by the police. And that, that seems to be ignored. And that, this is often true even of the like people who are not black. Um, and so, yeah, so for me that like redoubling, knowing that from the past and thinking about neoliberal inclusion in this moment, it's like very clear to me that, yeah, like there, that, uh, you know, there can be a certain violence to representation. Like, I think there's a certain violence to this, the way that Black people have been represented in the kind of, like, genealogy of trans studies that evacuates a Black sense of place. And I think the same can happen in, in this, like, moment where there's a lot of virtue signaling around, um, you know, like, trans inclusion, Black... And I think sometimes, too, that virtue signaling, one of the aims of it is it doesn't aim to like change the socio like the socio the power relationships that position black trans women uh in proximity to precarity and violence it also like doesn't often see the geographies of support and care and love that black trans and queer people create and i think there's something even more pernicious about this kind of calculable representation like okay we're doing a good job in our movement if we have one trans person and now we have to have a trans person one trans person who's like gender binary and one trans person who's non-binary you know it's like this idea somehow that like you know like because i think what the the conversation around trans and sexuality and gender fluidity is saying all along is that like yeah, like there's a lot of ways that people are that don't fit into the uh, the binary paradigm and that's what we need to get rid of. And so to me, when inclusion is about just trying to like represent, but then doesn't, doesn't circle back to getting rid of the thing that's causing the need for people to like have to enumerate themselves in this way, then all it is is turning all, like to me, it's like trying to render identity the kind of identity politics that someone like barbara smith and combahee were like this can be a really valuable source of creating collective political struggle if we can all sit and talk through and think through like how we relate create a sociality around this but i think there's this move in representation to create identity as almost a form of property it's about trying to give people a terrain that they can lay claim to and to me this is anti-black because after slavery, the Black demand was to free the land, including people themselves, from the extractive social relations and paradigms of racial capitalism. And so, like, yeah, I just see this a lot where it's like, I mean, I get hired on these terms. Like, I just got a job in trans studies. And not to say that my colleagues themselves are operating on these terms, but, like, the university at large certainly, like, certainly is operating on these terms of calculation and representation Right. And we know that like that. Yeah. Like that. It's just 
I don't think that's the way through. And I want to say lastly, too, I think I think of I'm thinking with spillers all the time that like the work, what is this work of saying yes, yes to the she has this quote of like, we have to say yes to the female within. And I think about that as like, if we're out here, we can't out be out here trying to like promote representation of black, queer and trans people if we actually don't want to sit with their sense of place and how actually taking it seriously might change the way that you think about yourself. That to me is about this just this idea of discreteness. Like I will fight for these rep- this representational space in which you can have a fiefdom, I can have a fiefdom, but no one has to change. And that is certainly not anything close to the kind of like radical relational politics that we've seen modeled by Black feminists. In my, yeah, like not at all. Yeah, if I had Funk Flex resources, I'd be dropping bombs right now. I mean, that's so fire. I You articulated so much of what I don't feel like I have the words for. Um, and I haven't asked this question in a while because I feel like it was right at the height of the protest that the white guilt emails were at a peak. Um, I don't know if you got... I, I imagine that like the intersection of Blackness plus any other um, kind of visible identity, whether it be like gender wise, having a disability, et cetera, maybe exponentializes those. Um, but every every time somebody's murdered by the police, because I have so many kids, I always get these like, is your family okay? How are you doing? Like I and I don't even really have that many people for whom I'm their only like black friends. So I can only imagine. But I'm just curious about how you guys are navigating this within the university and how do you like create space for the work <laughs> that you really want to do without having to center so much white fragility and like, you know, handhold them to, to liberation. Like how do you push forward kind of like being able to teach in gender studies, you know, for example, but not having to like pander and like walk so many steps back to that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> just gonna offer me up like that <laughs> call out all of your friends right now uh, my name if you want to reference certain we have receipts on everybody <laughs> oh god um, oh, I mean I can say that that is the question. I don't know that I have, I don't know that I have a complete answer to that at all. I think I'm really trying to figure it out um, as someone that is like still one foot in and out of the university trying to decide what I'm going to do about it. I think it's, I think this is a time of a lot of clarity and I think we should all really be paying attention to that clarity, both in terms of how the university has been failing in certain ways for a long time and now it's in certain forms of crisis so Hmm. now would be a time if we are trying to like if we still have our stake in the university in in any sense it is a good time to be putting that pressure on even if they are going to seek to enact more forms of austerity more forms of um you know stripping the things that i think those of us that felt drawn to it were really trying to pursue but it's it's a challenge. Um, 
and even my experience with it is still very like it's still very partial i mean like i've been an adjunct i'm like a phd like student right now but i can't speak to what it is to be a full-time professor in a university and to feel the increase of what kinds of discipline happen in that realm um what i can say is that yeah is that i think i think it makes a lot of sense to be focusing on what clarity is being offered right now to the continual like failings and inabilities for the institution to give us what we need, which I think is akin to, again, what a black sense of place offers, which is like the actual ability to live out a kind of livelihood that is not overdetermined by violence. And I think it is clear what the violences of the university have been. Um, and now the question is like, does it make sense to try and live within this thing? And if not, what are we kind of imagining beyond it? Or what types of leverage do we have now that there are such like real financial constraints being put on universities because they are so overly, um, you know, dependent on things like financial capital. <laughs> um, which is not Zoom a very stable thing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think all I can say is still to refocus on this question of like clarity. And I think to continue to have people that are willing to like speak about this, which is a whole nother thing and involves all different types of like risk and precarity, depending on who you are and where you are. Um, but I know that I am longing to see um, more continued like conversations and investments around like what the clarity of the sign is offering us around the failures of the university and how we actually want to step into like living our lives that aren't sutured to simultaneously be spaces that are also really violent. I want to just be mindful of time because I know one of you has a hard cut off at 145. Um, and, and the one thing I'll just say to that question is, you know, there's a part of me that is like, definitely sitting in the Twitter seat with popcorn waiting for like the skeletons and the receipts mm -hmm. to start falling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, while I'm very happy to all of our listeners who feel like they need a platform for that to provide one, I definitely think it's the people who are the least precarious that need to start speaking up first <laughs> to Absolutely. make room for that. Absolutely. So I'm definitely not asking, I'm not even implying that anyone here happens to have any receipts, but like, I'm definitely not asking for that. I guess one of the things that I am thinking about is it's kind of like Portlandia, which I've only watched one episode, <laughs> but there's this episode where um, the protagonist, who is a black woman, has a store and a white dude comes in. He wants to put a, well, he doesn't even say anything. He starts putting a Black Lives Matter um, sticker on her door. And she's like, no, because she just doesn't want no stickers on her door. And he's like screaming at her, but Black Lives Matter and what's wrong with you? And like, I have to put this sticker. And then it's like about to physically fight with her over wanting to put this Black Lives Matter sticker on her door. And so there's so much of what's progressive that feels like that. And I just wonder, like, what are the ways in which we're like fostering, fostering a discourse that doesn't call that out? Like, not that we even need to call it out explicitly, but like, what are the ways in which we're not like how can we maybe not what are that we're not doing it but what are the ways in which we can shift the conversation to focus as as you trevor articulated yeah. 
into not just our own fiefdoms, but how do we get free? And how does this like lingering <laughs> on the Blacks and queer sense of place force us to like re-examine the whole framework in which we started the conversation so we could actually get somewhere different rather than mm. like one up or like upgrade our vocabulary and word box to like weaponize against someone else or something. Um, and Are we so- a little desperate for allies, Khadija? Right, like, is that the problem? Like, like when you're constantly surrounded <laughs> by people stepping on your neck in like jackboots, the person doing it in a slipper is like, well, oh, like, well, that's helpful. Like, is that is that the origin of the problem you're describing? Like, I don't I don't know that that's the case, but I'm I'm curious. Um, am I desperate for allies? Not no, you but personally. Actually, <laughs> not me personally. No, I'm just thinking like, and I mean, I think we. I only want to speak for myself, but I think it does come down to precarity, right? Like, yeah. I don't. I'm not like chilling with people who are operating like this. Like, if I'm gonna be, if I need like a phone call to lift my spirits, it's not gonna be that person. But if I want to fund, you know, my Black Lives Think Think Tank or something. You know, those are when those kind of questions come into the calculus or like presenting at a conference or like just trying to create space for broader public work and doing stuff and like making space for like radical comments or I mean, we could critique whether like comments is even the right term. But um, like to me, these are unavoidable, unavoidable questions. But I just I know it's 122. Mm -hmm. So what I'm thinking is that if each of you could maybe share some final thoughts as it relates to this question and the reimagining, and then we'll scroll to our ritual of like sharing something with the listeners that you would like to recommend, like something you're reading, listening, watching, et cetera. Does that, does that vibe with y'all? I mean, I could really talk to you for three more hours and I'm happy to, but mm -hmm. you know, I just, I know that you got to go. So I want to make sure we cover that last one. Yeah, that works for me too. All right, cool. So, I mean, I'll let y'all decide. That works for me. I don't have an easy answer because this is a question I've been sitting in. Um, I'm in Georgia right now trying to work with this house that my dad left me when he passed away last year to turn it into like a residency for Black and Indigenous artists and activists. And so I'm literally dealing with these questions. Like, okay, so you might need some like money to help really make this space sustainable so that it can be for who and yeah that's something I'm excited about right now is just in my own personal network and then on the internet it does seem to be an explosion in this moment of like black queer and trans folks specifically doing like land, doing land stewarding with this kind of like abolitionist um, analysis and wanting to really rethink what it means to like yeah, like what, like rethink what housing looks like. Like I know there's a big campaign happening in New Orleans. I there, there's so many. I've seen an explosion of them, and that's something I'm really excited about. Is like, yeah, you know, instead of I think so often our need to survive, like everything Romy said, puts a you know we have to have this relationship to institutions that sometimes just on a basic level sucks up our energy to kind of actually try to imbricate our desires for survival and change, like how Audre Lorde says, um, you know, have, like actually trying to materialize those things in connection to each other, which to me also looks like, I mean, this this moment of COVID is really asking us to rethink out like 
what does it, what does connection really mean? And what, yeah, like, how, like how literally can we be around each other? And I think asking for things, yeah, there are things people have to think about that certain people have been struggling with who are immunocompromised around like gathering and distance and boundaries. And I don't know, it's a really good, in my social circle, just having to negotiate like, like co like yeah connections in this COVID time is really I think highlighting how unsustainable monogamy is as a structure and how unreal it is actually like how any people who think they're in a monogamous arrangement aren't like you depend on so many connections to reproduce yourself but (laughs) yeah like for Mm -hmm. me just like I think that like really I don't have an easy answer, but like settling into that. And I really loved what you said, Romy. I think mm-hmm. this is a really good moment yeah. for uh, Black people, especially Black people in academia who've always felt this sense of like having one foot out the door because it's like, what is this? But mm-hmm. I need to keep this job for X, Y, Z reasons. But like, actually, I'm, I'm writing for like America, the series finale. Like, I don't, yeah, it's like, how, like, how do you actually do that, though? <laughs> yeah, because mm-hmm. functionally, like, you are actually working towards in oppositional, seemingly oppositional ways. So how do you really integrate that? Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'm in it. I don't have an easy answer. But I think for me, working on the space, trying to think about, yeah, like, how, like, how would I actually want to move away from inheritance? Because I'm not going to have any children to, like, a community land trust, like, the word that I've been really dwelling with right now is like a black queer sense of place is 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 doing the work of demilitarizing kinship because so much mm. of the work of the post-war onboarding of gender, what gender promise, what the states promised to black people vis-a-vis normative gender in a nuclear family was during the post-war period was a promise for the kind of like expansion of an interior that could be knowable and calculable and like territorialized in the physical and three-dimensional world and then right what that asked them to do was to disavow people in their community like I believe that black people had to be convinced to disavow the people who today we would look on in the past and say are queer and trans like they people had to be Mm. inculcated with the logic to parse that sexual practice out from just as a discrete thing that made someone ineligible for membership into the community. I do really believe that. And I like, I think that was a huge project of post-emancipation, but then a huge project of the post-war period when gender becomes a speakable term. And so I think, yeah, that's a big work right now is demilitarizing kinship. Uh, like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I've been thinking about a lot. And like, what literally, what does that look like? And that goes back to your question of representation. It's not enough anymore to just be like, oh yeah, we included these black trans people. It's like, how is the knowledge and thought from black trans people reshaping how we pursue freedom? Reshaping how, yeah, like what we're actually asking for. So yeah, like to me, there's such a, looking in the carceral archive of like black trans people where we find them in these different points in the carceral archive it's like the demand for abolition is clear like there's no there's no reforming this thing like yeah like and ha- like what are we asking for when we ask for that we can't just look at prisons we have to look at the social welfare system itself because in my research i see how 
the social welfare system was weaponized against sexual and gender nonconforming people. The queen and welfare queen is a black trans woman. Her name is Lucy Hicks Anderson. She was charged with fraud for accepting her husband's uh, military pension as his legally married wife because she was not a so-called biological woman. So it's like that was way before Ronald Reagan uttered a word about welfare queens. Um, and so, yeah, like that's what I'm saying. Like the like the like trans women's history is black women's history, and until if we don't get that, if we don't get that through our head, you know. Like <laughs> like there's this way that I feel like yeah, people want to be like okay. Like, okay. Trevor, I'm just going to cut you off real quick. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, next time I'm allotting like three hours. How you drop five, like, you drop like a whole <laughs> at the end. And you know, like, I'm passing my child welfare. You bringing up the well. I was like, what? And I want to yeah, know so much. Go. But I know that <laughs> Romy has to go And so <laughs> next time I'm giving y'all way more time. Because I, mean, I was like, what? You opening like, up a whole nother. Um, there's so a, much more that we need to talk about. So we definitely. Um, yeah, y'all gotta come back and I'm giving you way more now. And Romy know y'all both very well. Because when you was in my inbox talking about is this gonna take more than two hours? I was like, two hours. I'm like, oh now, now I know. Okay. Stand corrected. <laughs> I stand. Oh my god. <laughs> I know we need to a lot. Okay, this is what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna do. I've been one is that... for longer episodes since we started this podcast. <laughs> okay, this is what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna do. We we could talk. We could talk for thirty seconds after this. This wow, is what we're gonna wow. do. Is that <laughs> all right? Let's see. One thirty-six. You know what? I'm gonna just Romy and Trevor. I was gonna Stanley and Elon. I'm so sorry. I hijacked. I was gonna give you some time for last thoughts, but we we gotta move this along. So, um, Romy and Trevor, if you could concisely recommend something to our listeners that you're watching, reading, or listening to. Stanley, all of us, we just gonna skip our turn this time. Um, and uh, it can be on topic or off. It can be anything. I mean, it's something I've been listening to, like literally on repeat. Like, cannot escape it, and I'm always like subsumed by the velvetyness of it. Is uh, Beverly Glenn Copeland's Keyboard Fantasies? I've just been listening to that over and over and over again. Um, yeah, it's really. It's really like the emotional resonance that I feel like pretty setting. So that's been that's been opening up and like replenishing a lot of life right now. Beautiful. Dope, Trevor. I, I'm I'm living a country life right now. I recommend yeah. Here's my recommendation. <laughs> I recommend that anyone can, who can get to water, moving water, just go listen to it for a little bit. That's my listening recommendation. Cause that's been really that's been really coming through for me. The rain, the water, being near any kind of river, yeah, putting being able to put bare feet and soil to ground. Those are things. Those are my recommendations. Well, wait to get me in my feelings. I'm over here in New York City. I gotta really go <laughs> hunt for some land and some like soil. First of all, the layers of urine that I would have to navigate in order to I touch mean, the damn soil. You got to get like, like, a little right. and dig you like a little hole. Does East River count? Do the East yes. River count? Okay, yeah. all right. I'm going to go. I'm afraid of what I might hear if I go listen to this. <laughs> all right, listen. I love y'all. Got to come back. 
I, I love y'all. We're going to do a second season. We ended in the first season at the end of July. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. Please keep it locked. Yeah. Um, next week, is it next week? Yes. Next week, we'll have Mimi Anuha on. This was Trevor yeah. Ellison and Romy Morrison. Yes. Um, please like us, subscribe us, rate us. I think there's some kind of algorithm. It's probably evil, but we'd appreciate it. Please review us. It helps. It helps. I realize it's Apple extracting your labor, but it helps us. Please get back. It's like mutual aid. Um, and write us at webeimagining at gmail.com. Trevor, Romy, Elon, Stanley, thank you so much. Thank you. That's it, y'all. Very happy, you guys.